Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. and welcome back to the tales of the justice society of america this is episode number 48 and i am scott gardner and i am michael bailey hey how's it going brother (laughs) it's been a long ass time it has been a long ass time see the listeners for the listeners it's going to be the the a mere tick of the clock but for us it's been what like about seven years i think since we recorded the last episode so uh yeah it's been a while I don't even remember what the hell we were talking about. I know we were deep into this storyline, but other than yes. that, because there's actually one of my notes that's going to come up much, much, much later is, uh, hey, wait a minute, didn't uh, I'll, I'll bring it up when when we get there, but uh, 
Yeah, I wish I could remember the, the finer details at the beginning of this story a little better because uh, it plays in nicely to, uh, to something that happens later in this issue. But anyway, we are going to be covering this episode, Justice League of America, number 209. And, Indeed. Uh, and you're going to give us the, uh, the synopsis on this one. Yep, under a... Yet again, a George Perez cover, where you have a bunch of faces looking either up to the left or to the right at uh, Paradegaton, going, the world is mine, as you see in the background the four covers of the previous chapters of this book, but it's all cracked. Um, <laughs> now, let me ask you something real quick. Do you Do you imagine... Like when you hear voices, I, I assume that you hear voices in your head for the different characters. You know, as, as I just a, hear voices in voice. my head. In general, uh, you, you stole my joke. <laughs> I was going to say, as opposed to the voices you hear at other at other times. But do you hear um, her degaton with like a with like a thick German accent, like the world? No, no, actually, that would be French. The world is mine, or whatever. You know, something like that. Well, or, now I kind of hear it as um, Clancy Brown. Since he did the voice of the character in that episode of Brave and the Bold, I forgot about that. You're right. You're right. I'll have to watch that again to remember what what accent or whatever he was using in that. I think he did a little bit of a German accent, but I don't really think he should have a German accent. That's the thing. Um, Is he not German? He's. I thought he was an American. You know, what the hell kind of name Z. is Bird Degaton for an American? <laughs> it's short for Perry. Oh, is it? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just making this up as I go along. Um, no, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, Perry Degaton. Bear, <laughs> hi, hi, I'm Perry Degaton. You might know me from my such time travel stories. As I would totally have introduced myself as Perry Degaton at the very beginning of the episode. That's funny. Uh, so, <laughs> but to get us back to what we were talking about, this is book five of Crisis on Earth Prime, Let Old Acquaintances Be Forgot. It was written by Jerry Conway, art by Don Heck, lettered by the legendary Ben Oda. Carl Gafford was the colorist, Len Wein was the editor, and Roy Thomas was the plot consultant. And the combined forces, or at least several of them, of the JLA, the JSA, and the All-Star Squadron. And if you think I was going to do an All-Star Squadron <laughs> abbreviation, you're wrong. Um, because it would be kind of funny to say the JLA, the JSA, and the ASS. Um, <laughs> head back to the White House to meet with the President. They catch him up to speed on the various bad guys they have fought before taking stock on how many missiles they still have to find. We get another round of flashbacks regarding the present of the of Earth-2, which is a military police state, and of Earth-Prime, which is looks like something out of the Omega Man or something. Meanwhile, po Power Girl, Firestorm, and Commander Steel head to Switzerland, where they are attacked by Pear Degaton's men, and the crime syndicate version of Johnny Quick, who explains that the CSA is back with Degaton, but only for the moment. Firestorm tracks Quick to a control room, where JQ knocks out a guard to assume control, but the guard accidentally fires the remaining missiles. 
Commander Steel, Power Girl, and Firestorm each grab onto one of the missiles and manage to get them to get them safely away from their intended targets, which were Berlin, Moscow, and London. After they brief the president on their mission, in which Commander Steel regrets not letting the missile hit, that was going to hit Berlin uh, do its job. We cut to Green Lantern, Zatanna, and Firebrand, who have headed to see Professor Z and Professor Emerson, Everson, excuse me, to warn them about Degaton. With the professor's help, they are sent to Cuba in 1962 in another reality, somehow where they witness a rip and, re- and rip and reality begin to open. Back in 1942, the remaining heroes track Degaton to his base on the future site of the Pentagon and capture the would-be despot. Huntress, meanwhile, tracks down Owlman and does a bang-up job of kicking his ass. In, Jan- in 1962, the heroes take down the crime syndicate and Degaton, confused yet, and since they've stopped Degaton, nothing of what just happened actually happened because it's a fucking Perdegaton story I'm sorry that was that was harsh uh, the all-stars are back in 1942 about to enter JSA headquarters Degaton is uh, being verbally abused by his boss in 1947 the crime syndicate is in their bubble and in 1982 the JLA and JSA have their usual meetup free this time of any sort of crisis the two teams have some chip chat but Power Girl is brooding in the corner and explains to a hot-for-her Firestorm that she feels like some great tragedy was narrowly averted. She asks Firestorm to hold her, and they gaze into the stars until Firestorm gets a little handsy, and Power Girl throws him into the sun. (laughs) I'd like that ending, actually. (laughs) I have all kinds of beefs with this, but it suddenly occurred to me, and this is not in my notes, This is it just occurred to me during your synopsis, that all right, you, you know I'm going to complain about the way this ends with it, you know, all resetting and it never happened and all that. However, all would be forgiven if during that part where we're you know the clock is reset and we're back seeing uh, Professor Z berating Degaton, if Degaton just pulled out a pistol and shot him in the face, I would totally forget because that was actually my favorite part. I think of this story in the long run is when Degaton early in this story just walked into the room and didn't waste any time. Was he just shot him? Just, he made sure that he killed him good and dead this time, as opposed to all the other times where he shot him. But Z lived long enough to like. So what do he like? Live long enough to tell the heroes what was going on or something like that. Yeah, this time like that. Degaton made sure that that son of a bitch was dead. I liked that part of the story, and it's a shame. I, I actually feel badly for Degaton because he's right back where he started, you know, getting shit from Professor Z. That sucks. Um, <laughs> I don't feel bad for him at all. You don't? No. Oh, come on. Of all the crap that he pulls, what are you talking about? Yeah, but that, that part of it sucks, you know? He destroyed the Earth of an alternate reality. Hey, if I had to put up with Professor Z's shit, I'd be ready to destroy some Earths, too, is all I'm saying, all right? Nobody likes to get picked on all the time, all right? I... You, can't, you can't blame a guy for wanting to blow up the Earth just because he got picked on. That's all I'm saying. Not like I have a complex about it or anything. Not at all. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? I don't know. I'm just, I'm off on a rant. I'm sick, in case you can't tell. Well, I knew that. So I'm going to plead in. Sick in the head. (laughs) Ah, And that's when you walk in and shoot me. (laughs) 
I told you I don't like to be picked on. I'm going to go work on my time machine right now. Uh, oh, am I running first on this one? No, actually, I was going to go uh, through the historical notes. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. See, I told you we're, we're out of practice for this sort of thing. <laughs> we are out of practice. Um, there's not that many. Uh, the notes from the All-Star Companion Volume 2 are, on page 3 of JLA 209, Harry Hopkins has charted the five JLA-JSA All-Star teams, their destinations, their CSA opponents, and the whereabouts of the 27 purloined atomic missiles on a White House blackboard. Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas did much the same thing in the former's office on Ventura Boulevard in L.A., where they co-plotted much of the series. In a flashback showing the zombie-like inhabitants of Doctor of Manhattan, <laughs> I almost said of Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> <clears throat> That's yeah. what this story needed: blue, naked people. <laughs> in a flashback showing the zombie-like inhabitants of Manhattan in a post-nuclear war, Doctor Fate refers to a war in which the survivors envy the dead. A paraphrase of a statement made in the early '60s by Soviet Premier Khrushchev. Although he can't speak for Jerry Conway and is aware uh, and is aware that some have criticized the length and complexity of the five-issue series, Roy Thomas has always considered Crisis on Earth Prime one of his favorite All-Star Squadron stories. Hmm. And that's it for the historical notes. I mean, that, that's all. Really light month <laughs> or light week in terms of that. I can't remember if I've said this before, and I apologize if I have already said this. I've probably said it for every single chapter, so I apologize. I just don't remember. But I liked this a lot when I was a kid, and I still I still do like it a lot. But I think this is the first time I've ever sat and read the thing start to finish, you know, in one shot. And I know that there's at least one chapter of this I hadn't previously read. I don't remember which chapter that was. But taken as a whole, I enjoyed it. It's just I knew that this ending was coming, and that yeah. always ruins it for me because I still maintain that, you know, Per Degaton shouldn't be perceived as a threat by anybody because nobody ever remembers the adventures, mm-hmm. you know, including himself half the time. So when he shows up modern day and everybody goes into a tizzy about it, I, I just I'm left scratching my head because it's like no you you you're just meeting this guy for the first time again for the umpteenth time you know so that that and always... really all of all of Degaton's adventures are for the first time right <laughs> I mean he I don't know how he remembers them but really <laughs> technically every time he does it it's the first time he's doing it right I don't. Uh, I don't know how does he remember. I forget if they mentioned that. That he, does he remember his past attempts at this, or is it like every time the first time? Well, sometimes, like in the beginning of this story, sometimes it all ends up coming back to him. Because what was it in the beginning of this one? He had like a dream, right? Yeah, he had a dream where it all came out. See, I, I call shenanigans on that. You know that that sort of thing really drives me nuts. And a, and a great example of this. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of the book. There was a great book. This is going back several decades, but there was this great time travel book by Jack Finney. It was called Time and Again. And uh, this was a great time travel story. It used a really good premise. The premise of, of the time travel in it was very similar to that Christopher Reeve movie, um, Somewhere in Time. But okay. just a really good, really tight time travel story in which... 
at the end of the story, time is changed by the main character to basically just suit his own ends. And then years later, he wrote a sequel to it called uh, From Time to Time. And in that one, I never actually finished that book, and here's why. Because right at the beginning of that story, people were um, being found by this shadowy organization who actually remembered the prior timeline. And so they were having like conflicting memories of the world as it is now and the world as it should have existed or something to that effect. Those sorts of stories always drive me nuts because at the end of the story, we're left with the same thing with Power Girl's remark of, you know, I feel like we've narrowly uh, escaped some fantastic tragedy. It's like, I, I understand what the author's going for when they do that sort of thing. It, it's one of those, you know, ironic, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the audience. But it's like, yes, I know I was privy to the whole adventure. You don't have to throw that at me because in the long run, I think it just comes off as silly. They, If time was changed and history was altered and everything, then nobody remembers anything. There's no residual memories. There's no, you know, it's not like a mind wipe was performed. The events literally never happened. And so I really don't like those those kind of endings or those kind of, you know, tropes in comics like where Perdegaton remembers the other failed attempts. Because he shouldn't. By, by all rights, there should be absolutely no, you know, trace memories, as it were. I can see where you're going for that, and, and to a large extent, I agree. I don't know if I feel as passionate about it as you, but you know, like you, uh, what I do feel passionate about is the fact that you know I loved Paradegaton, but I, I got to kind of ask myself why. Right? Yeah. You yeah. know, it's just you know he's got to. I mean, design wise, he's great. I love the little Gestapo looking outfit with you know in black and the jack boots and the D on his chest. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's a great look and it, and it is a great concept of a guy going through time amassing an army and trying to conquer a certain time period that d- is not as technologically as savvy as where he's coming from. That, I mean, that's cool. And the original story, though I've never read it, has such a great, you know, the original JSA story has such a great premise to it. But it's it's that failing is that it's the exact same problem, and this is a spoiler warning to anyone who hasn't read it. It was my biggest problem and why I cannot hold Generations 3, the John Byrne Superman Batman Generations 3, to as high a... uh, a standard as I do one and two mm-hmm. because at the end of Generations three, none of what happened over the previous twelve issues happened. I, I had a feeling about that. See, I haven't ever read that one. I love. Oh, I'm sorry, the, dude. No, no, I thought that's you right. had. I, I mean, I, I have it. I've had it for years, and I, I just haven't ever made the time to read it. Um, you would have figured it out at issue four, like I did. You would have what figured it out? Yeah, I figured I, I called it at issue four or five. That crap. This is none of this is going to matter. Right. Uh, see, I, you should read I, the Jonah I, I, Hex issue. Yeah, I hate that, and I hate when you can see it coming too, like that. So that that might actually be one of the reasons I haven't read that series because I think I when I first picked it up, I think I read the first issue or two, and then somewhere along the line, I just I, I don't know if I was waiting for the whole series to finish before reading it or, or something like that. But that's also where. 
Byrne was in that period for me where I just I felt like he wasn't really bringing his A game at the time. But anyway, that's that's all besides the point. I do have a few uh, page by page notes here, just a few of them to go over real quick. But uh, mostly nitpicks, as is my want to do. But uh, I love it. On page three, second panel. Um, Johnny Quick says, which leaves three super bombs still unaccounted for. And it makes me think about that that thing. If you ever watched those uh, Seinfeld shorts with Superman in it, where Superman was complaining, he goes, uh, you know, now you've got, you know, Superman, I'm not so unique anymore. Now you've got super markets and, you know, super this. And so he goes, I saw super glue the other day. I, would, I think Superman would take real objection to this term super bombs in this story. <laughs> but he doesn't ever pipe up about it. Um, okay, I've got a, a real beef. Same page, next panel. You've got uh, they're they're all gathered around and they're talking. You know, it's, it's a really talky talky sequence. And Hawkman says, "While we wait for them to report in, blah 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 blah." And I'm thinking, why are you waiting? I ah, this is one of those Silver Age tropes that when it's used in modern comics drives me absolutely nuts. It's the it's where I feel this story falters is because it's regressing into how these team ups were always handled in in prior years, where you get you know umpteen superheroes all gathered together, but they break into these goofy little teams, usually very unbalanced, as we've already pointed out before, and they all go off and do their own thing. I already don't really care for that kind of uh, JLA JSA team up, but then it's compounded by the fact in this. Uh, story right here each group is actually waiting for the previous group to finish their mission before they set off on their own I'm like what kind of shit is that you're under a deadline why are they all just hanging out in Roosevelt's office waiting for the prior team to check in if you're going to do that then everybody go out together at the same time or, or you know it's just it re- when I realized that that was what's ha- what was happening in this story it was drive I would imagine that that would drive Superman insane waiting around for a team of like you know like the Huntress Aquaman and you know Robot Man or something you know to, to you know make sure that the nuke doesn't go off in Kansas and you know, in the meantime you've got Superman going Jesus Christ I could have wrapped this up you know in in 3 nanoseconds you know a half an hour ago you know I, it just that kind of thing really makes me a little bit crazy. Also, in that very same word balloon, continuing from what he says, you know, while we wait for them to report, and he says, let me repair that torn arm of yours, robot man. What the hell does Hawkman know about robots? How does he know? How He's to- from another planet. They know all about robots. Oh, God. No, I don't know. This Hawkman wasn't the Thanagarian, though, was he? Yeah, he was. This is the this is the Earth-1 Hawkman. Oh, okay. I was thinking he was the Golden Age Hawkman. Yeah, I guess you're right. But still, still, I don't know. I guess I'll, I'll accept that. No prize, I guess, but grudgingly. <laughs> Very grudgingly. All right. Page four, top of the page. Okay, this was the one sequence I really, really could have done without in this, where Roosevelt Roosevelt's thinking about uh, atomic war and Holocaust and all that thing, and 
uh, he writes a note to himself, study Manhattan Project, is it worth the cost? I was like, okay, I really don't need you preaching at me about this. You know, you might not agree with, you know, what happened, you know, with the use of the A-bomb and all that, but, you know, come on, this is a, a goofy comic book story, leave leave that shit at the door, you know? Well, you know, I, I have a similar note, and that is basically like, you know, I think the only reason you can really do this is because... It's not... Since the story never happened, Roosevelt never thought about that. So it really doesn't matter. So it it allows the writer to kind of play with the concept. If Roosevelt could have seen the future, would, if he, would he have, you know, um, let the Manhattan Project go? My answer to that question is, well, if he'd seen the future and he knew the Allies won, you know, the atomic bomb could have had a... Par- played a part in that you know because if he's briefed on the cuban missile crisis okay you know he's already knowing what the future is and telling roosevelt the future doesn't really really matter in the long run right and i i I think you know i can't speak personally i've never done any kind of in-depth study on, on on fdr but he seemed to me, you know, with the decisions he made regarding, you know, getting into World War II, and, and once we finally got into World War II, how he was in it to win it at all costs, that in the end he's like, well, if that is the only way we can defeat Japan, then we need to go forward with it. Right. So, again, I'm kind of talking out on my ass here, but still, that that's kind of how hey, I Hey, I do it, it all the time. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> You're talking to my ass? That's <laughs> like the worst sort of ventriloquism. <laughs> super ass ventriloquism. It's an awesome superpower. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I, I'd like to I, personally, and maybe this is just me projecting onto uh, FDR. But uh, I'd like to think that if he could see far enough into the future, that he might actually drop a few more tr- strategically placed uh, <laughs> nuclear weapons. But you know, that's just me. Why did you bomb Russia? Just trust me on this. Uh, yeah, just go with me on this, guys. It's for the best. Um. Okay, very next panel, uh, page four, panel four. All right, first of all, what the hell is Firestorm doing right there? <laughs> Just randomly. I mean, it's a giant powers. burst of his atomic power. I have no idea what he's doing right there. Um, okay, uh, again, with the nitpick here. We've got uh, Steel being towed along through the sky by uh, Power Girl. And he says, I hope you've got this figured right, Power Girl. We've only got 30 minutes left until Degaton's deadline. Uh, it just begs the question, what the hell have you been doing all this time? Where have they been? At McDonald's? I mean, Jesus Christ, the world's going to What were they given, like a 24-hour deadline? Something like that. So now they're at 23 and a half of that deadline, and now they're on their mission? I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about waiting to the last minute to save the planet. Not, not to mention, aren't they aren't they defending like two or three planets at this point? Ah, oh, gee, it just well, they you know they had to listen to his favorite radio show, you know, because Commander <laughs> Steel never, never ever misses you know his favorite radio shows, and then you know Firestorm wanted to try like an old fashioned diner, and then Power Girl was all you know like you know they spent like three hours with the cops. 
when Power Girl went off on, on, on some businessman for treating his secretary like, you know, a secretary and patting her on the ass. And, you know, they had to smooth things. It was just a complete and utter, like, you know, like a comedy of errors. And finally they're like, oh, shit, we got to stop here. Dang it, Dud. <laughs> what was that series a couple of years ago that was, like, supposed to be like a lost chapters kind of it was like legends of the dc universe or something yes. like that there should be like a three issue thing in that that tells of the of the time what they were doing in the story <laughs> i'd love to know i mean god all right let's see here page six panel six what was my beef here all right power girls flying up to the tower where she figures the nuclear missiles are she goes the hard part's over now Diffusing the warheads with the information Hawkman gave us. What the hell does Hawkman know about diffusing nuclear? It's like Hawkman knows everything, and it's not bad enough that his nth metal solves world peace and herpes and everything else. But then you've got where he knows robotics and nuclear weapons, and you know. Maybe this is again. This is the alien Hawkman, I guess. But Jesus, this is the alien Hawkman, though. So theoretically, he would, he might know something about it. No, no, no. no. I'll give you robots, but you you can't have nuclear weapons too. I I I refuse to believe he knows both. Okay, that's (laughs) that's just stretching my credibility way too damn far. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course, but. I mean, come on, seriously. I know that this was the author's... Oh, wait a minute. This isn't even Roy Thomas is the writer on this one, is it? No, this is Jerry Conway. Yeah. See, I was going to say, I know that he's Roy Thomas's favorite character, but Roy Thomas isn't even the author of this one, so I don't get it. What is with the Hawkman love in this one? <sighs> Got to calm down. I'm going to have a stroke on air. Um, <laughs> She's going to leave me going, Scott? Hello? Scott? <laughs> All right. All right, here's a, here's a positive one. I'm going to switch gears for a minute. Page 15, panel 3, awesome. One of the few really cool uh, depictions of Superman in this particular issue, but I really do like that. I love when we see Superman flying like that. There's something about that, you know, with his fists bald, you know, flying with his arms straight out in front of him like that, smashing through stuff. I always, I'm always a sucker for that. His legs are a little far, spread a little far I just realized, yeah, they're not together, are they? Alright, I take uh, I take points off for that. I thought his legs were together because they should be. He should have his legs, he should be shaped like a Y, basically. He's got his legs yeah. together and his, his hands out in front of him, but bald into fists, smashing through something. That's actually pretty cool, but anyway, I do like that. I even like the panel at the bottom, you know, the two panels at the bottom where he heaves the tank. That's actually pretty cool. It's very uh, Golden Age Superman right there, I think. Um, I looked this up. I wrote myself a question, and then I ended up looking it up. And I think I know the answer to my own question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is Bruce, uh, excuse me, is Owlman, rather, Bruce Wayne at this point? He's not, is he? No, I don't think so. It, that's a shame, because this is this would have been a really good opportunity right here, because... Uh, where where was that? It was Batman Family, I think, where the Huntress fought her, not her mother, but she fought like the Earth One Catwoman. Who, I remember that we talked about that. Yeah, remember. So yeah. this would have been an opportunity for her to fight her. It was also drawn by Don Heck, actually. It was, wasn't it? You're right. You're right. So this would have been cool if at this time, because I know that later on, you know, later uh, iterations of of Owlman actually are. 
um, you know, just the evil Bruce Wayne of, a, of another planet or whatever. It, it's too bad that he wasn't at this time an evil Bruce Wayne because that actually would have been that would have made this fight that much cooler. I mean, it is a pretty good fight as it is, but it would have been really neat to see Helena Wayne having to face an evil version of her dead father in combat. That would have, I think that would have played out very nicely and it's uh it's a shame, but at that time I guess they just hadn't gone that direction with uh but you know, I would imagine still somebody had to think of that at the time and think, shit, you know, it's too bad we didn't already have this in place, you know. Um actually he wasn't Bruce Wayne. No, no, that's what I'm saying. At at that time he was not Bruce Wayne. No, 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 not even the current one. He's Thomas Wayne Jr. Yeah, yeah. Now that you say that, yeah, that's right. but I mean, he's essentially Bruce Wayne, though. I mean, he's got basically the same origin, right? Where he was inspired instead of a, a uh, owl and the Owlman character was revived along with his teammates in the late 1990s for modern DC continuity in the graphic novel JLA Earth Two. Mm-hmm. The Owlman was developed to be reflective of the modern readers with a far darker attitude and background than either of the two previous teams. On Antimatter Earth, Owlman was now Thomas Wayne Jr., the older brother of that reality's Bruce Wayne. Oh, okay. In most mainstream DC universes, Batman's genesis occurred when Bruce Wayne was witness to the murder of his parents and was inspired to devote his life to fighting crime. In the Antimatter universe, however, young Bruce was killed along with his mother by a policeman when Tom Thomas Sr. refused to accompany him for questioning. Thomas Jr. escaped the crime scene with the hoodlum Joe Chill, whom he considered his hero, and grew up to become Owlman. Hmm. And Thomas Wayne Sr. was the chief of police. But that's all in that JLA Earth 2 graphic novel, right? Yes. Yeah. Well. But anyway, I'm just saying I think that there was a missed opportunity there, or or it would have you know, it, it been kind of cool just because she had already faced you know an, an alternate reality version of her mother in combat, and then this would have been an alternate reality version of her father. So you know, kind of rounding out the whole thing. Um, last note for me for this one is, uh, uh, you know. The, the the biggest nitpick I had with this is that um, we have the one team that ends up going... I'm trying to find what page it is because I forgot to make a note of the page here. But you've got the one team that ends up traveling to Earth Prime just shy of when the uh, the crime syndicate showed up to steal the nuclear weapons from the Cuban Missile Crime. Basically... What kicked off this entire adventure, right? Let's yeah. see. That was um, here. It is Firebrand, Green Lantern, and Zatanna use Professor Z's time travel thingy to skip dimensions. I don't know how the hell that works. Yeah, that's, that they, was my kind of point. Yeah. <laughs> so they they end up traveling to Earth Prime um, in 1962. They show up there just prior to when the crime syndicate shows up to steal the nuclear weapons and by stopping the crime syndicate from stealing those nukes that makes everybody fade away it makes the whole timetable reset to where this adventure never happened didn't somebody propose that idea at the beginning of this story and Dr. Fate poo-pooed it I'll put money on that I didn't look it up 
but I'm almost positive that somebody I don't remember. pulled a Marty McFly and said, so we time travel back to the future, and we stop old Biff from stealing the almanac. And, and Dr. Fate was like, no, 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 we can't do that. For whatever bullshit reason he came up with, nope, nope, can't do that. But that's exactly how they end up resolving this issue. <laughs> so I, it, it left me very frustrated. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" This is this is. A, I, I'm going to look that up at some point. But I swear to God, I think that might have even been in like the first or second issue, where where they realized that there was a problem. You know, it's, it was probably the second chapter where they all met up or something, and they realized that something was wrong, and they they realized that where it could all be traced back to. And they were in the the underground thing with the zombies and all that. Remember? I, would I don't swear remember to, exactly. Yeah, I would swear that somebody said something about you know let's let's time travel back there and stop them. And and it was Doctor Fate that that spoke up and was like, no, the fabric of time has already been too fucked with. We can't do that. And blah blah blah. <laughs> remember? Come on, I back just, me up on this, dude. I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm usually the one with a shitty memory, but I'm, I, I can I can visualize. Yeah, the- Bailey, I'm usually the one with a shitty memory. You're the one who remembers, you know, what you had for breakfast when you were in the ninth grade, the day you took like that really great dump. I'm- exactly. Exactly. God Almighty, you remember what you were wearing like 20 years ago when you're when you're doing your your telling your stories and you can't remember what, what happened at the beginning of this thing. I have Swiss cheese memory. There are holes there. <laughs> All right. Well, you Damn run it. with your notes, and while you do that, okay. I'm going to look this shit up because it's driving me crazy. Um, I, um, I kind of like this splash page. On the first one, it, it, I just feel bad for Huntress because she's always going to be left behind. I mean, even freaking Aquaman's holding on to Liberty Bell, but the Huntress has to run with Johnny Quick. That's nice. You guys really like her. The uh, the blackboard thing on page three, I actually really like as, as for a way of disseminating information very quickly without having too much expository dialogue, even though there's a lot of expository dialogue in this first couple of pages. I, I kind of like that, and I like that they incorporated it from the from the from the, from the the actual events of them planning out the series. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry. Even if this guy w- wasn't a... Um, wasn't a traitor or uh, or the the you know going to attack them on page four how could they have taken this guy seriously with what he's wearing he's in like a purple suit he's got a little hat he's got a red sash i mean <laughs> and why is power girl inexplicably wearing pants which on this page which page is this page four page four all right they did not color her legs on the entire page. <laughs> oh, you mean the Bur- Burger Meister Meister Burger? Yeah, I like yeah. that part. <laughs> he looks like he looks like Mayor McCheese was turned into a human being. <laughs> um, what else do I got here? Uh, he really threw me off with that Mayor McCheese thing. You got about half the audience going, Mayor McCheese. Who the hell is Mayor McCheese? It's like that family guy where 
Lois comes in dressed as the hamburger. She says she's a hamburger, but she's actually dressed as Grimace. And she, she's like, I'm the hamburger. No, Lois, you're not the hamburger. You're Grimace, Ronald's retarded friend. <laughs> um, I actually like the fact on page seven that Johnny Quick takes out Power Girl by. Um, Okay, this is going to sound really bad by vibrating her. <laughs> at which point my wife looks at me like I'm crazy. And then, like, throwing her through the, uh... Throwing her out the window, but she's vibrating, so she can't really control herself. And, uh... But at that point... <laughs> I've heard that so many times in my... <laughs> Never mind. But she drops, and she drops into this person's house, and she goes, Ouch, this is embarrassing. My beautiful house, priceless antiques, you have ruined my life. <laughs> and Power Girl goes, guess it's hard to stay neutral when the war comes smashing through your front door. And what I really want after that is... Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> uh, I, I do love on page eight, though, that you know the, the guard accidentally launches the missiles. And Johnny Quick's like, I'm out of here. And Firestorm's like, no douchebag. If Europe is going up, you're going up with it. I'm like, damn, that's kind of cold-blooded. Um, page 10, on that bottom panel, does it look, does it me, or does it look like Commander Steel is about 30 seconds away from, from going, <laughs> and pointing his finger at somebody? <laughs> but, you know, I have to tell you, Mr. President, that there was a moment when I realized that my missile might have been the one aimed at Berlin when I almost didn't. Well, never mind. It's like, it would have been funny if he let that go and it was the one aimed at London instead. <laughs> <laughs> what? I thought I was going to Berlin. What have I done? Oh, shit. Now I'm going to have to disappear again. <laughs> um, Wait a minute. Al- I'm sorry. I, I, I must interrupt you. I found it. Okay, All Star Squadron number fifteen. I, I was wrong. It was the pre. It was the prior chapter. It's book four, so it was a lot later in this story than I thought it was. But here it is. It's the sequence where Superman, Robot Man, and Doctor Fate are dispatched to go up and tear up that satellite. Remember? Yep. They're they're flying up into space, and uh, Robot Man says, "I still don't get it, Superman, Doctor Fate. You two came from the future, so why don't you go back there and change everything back somehow?" And Superman says, "Too risky, Robot Man. Trust us." And Doctor Fate says. Already, the delicate fabric of the multiverse is dangerously frayed by Degaton's arrogant meddling. To tamper with it further, instill another world of or era. No, we must fight him here, on the battleground he has chosen, or risk causing the very time and space calamity we hope to prevent. And Robot Man says, if you say so... <laughs> But this is exactly how the story is ultimately resolved. Oh. It's like that old Dennis Miller routine when he talks about the fatal flaw of the Wizard of Oz is at the end of the film when Glinda the Good Witch goes, ha, 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 ha. you had the power to go back all along. All you had to do was click your heels together. Really? You had the power to tell me that three hours ago. <laughs> I would love if somehow, well, one day they'll be able to do it with, with digital effects and all that, just to see, like, uh, Dorothy stand there and stew for just a minute, and then the next scene is like her, like, pulling at the hair of Glinda, and like they're on the ground wrestling around and stuff, and she's screaming, You bitch! <laughs> and the cowardly line's going, This is hot. 
This is so hot. Um, I really want the deleted scene from page 11 when they go to visit Professor Emerson and Professor Z of Alan Scott going, Hey, um, Professor Z, let me, let me talk to you for a minute over here. Um, you know your assistant, Peridegaton? Well, yeah. Um, how about you not be such a cock to him? Because <laughs> uh, really and truly, sir, you being a douchebag has a lot to do with what's going on right here. So how mm-hmm. about this? I don't atomize your brain with my ring, <laughs> and you don't be an asshole. And everyone's happy. All right, let's get back to the mission at hand. See, it's like I said, Professor Z is the villain of the piece. It's not Perdegaton. It's Professor Z. Because he's an asshole, it drives Perdegaton to these extreme measures. I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly. The... um it is kind of interesting, though, I will say from a storytelling standpoint, that Degaton actually gets defeated twice in this issue. But they're both pretty lackluster defeats. <laughs> I mean, the fights are pretty good. Don't get me wrong, the action in this issue is solid throughout. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's why I think it's kind of uh, that's why I think it, it's not kind of it is a, a satisfying conclusion to the story because we get a lot of action we get a lot of superhero stuff and you know a lot of butt kicking page 17 of Owlman versus Huntress is just great even though she's doing the judo chop type karate <laughs> um, and we get but we do get a nice shot of her cleavage on that last panel good lord mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe State must have come into the office that day and went, and just drew like that line. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just, basically at the end, it's not like, you know, Degaton gets knocked on his ass and, you know, Chris Tucker doesn't get over him and go, you got knocked the fuck out, but (laughs) Zatanna basically just suffocates him until he falls into unconsciousness. I will say this, I do like the fact that on page 20... Uh, right at you know the quarter mark of the page, everything starts getting wonky with the art, and people start fading away. It's a really neat effect. Yeah, um, which I thought was really cool. Don Heck's art throughout this issue—he's inking himself—is actually really good for Don Heck. Yes, I, I will agree with that. I mean, it's 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 almost like seeing Heck inked by Ordway in the previous issues of All Star that we did. I do like that when we do get back to normal, we see where everybody was at the beginning of the story and how they're just going on with their day now. Uh, I do... I gotta say, I, I really don't like on the last page. It's really cool. It's a nice piece of art of the JLA and the JSA getting together. And it really looks like Green Arrow and Barry Allen are hitting on the Huntress. Um, <laughs> as she's sitting on the couch, and even Red Tornado's like, you know, if she will uncross those legs, I will be the happiest android on the face of the planet. Aquaman's staring right at her boobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, Dr. Fate says, thank Ra that this year our gathering was not uh, was has gone without uh, unpleasant an incident. Perhaps we've changed our luck. And Batman says, luck has nothing to do with it, Dr. Fate. Simple mathematics. Another crisis was just against the odds. And again, you want to hear the wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yeah. And it... <laughs> 
Firestorm's getting mixed signals from Power Girl on this last page, though, because, you know, on one hand, she's like, you know, I'm not in the party mood, uh, you know, but even so, put your arms around me, I need some holding. Now, what was that about you were saying about wanting to get me alone? It's just like, hold me, but nothing's going to happen. So, deal with it. I, I figure somewhere she has an illegitimate child whose head is on fire. That That's my theory. <laughs> I'm just saying. Look, the one and only time she had a kid, it really was a suck-ass story, so... Yeah, I, one of these days I need to track that down just for my, the sake of my own curiosity, because I was thinking about that not long ago when um, Zero Hour came up in conversation, and it suddenly occurred to me, hey, wait a minute, wasn't Power Girl pregnant in that storyline? What the hell ever happened to that? And I still don't really know. I know it's some crazy Carol Danver-esque... Um, Storyline, but beyond that, I don't know the specifics. It was it. pretty lousy. From I haven't read it in well over a decade, so I don't I mean, remember. Didn't, didn't it turn out to be very similar to the whole Carol Danvers thing, where she ended up having a baby that was actually the baby's father, or some bullshit like that? Uh, no, it was. It had to do with Atlantean magic. Oh God! Well, you know how I feel point, about Atlantis, so. Because remember, at that at that point, Power Girl's origin was tied in with Atlantis, right? And Arion was her grandfather. Lame. They tried. They you tried. Know. Yes, I, I will give them points for trying, but they should have tried a little harder because that was lame. <laughs> you, you, you know, there's there's a conversation out there somewhere between the Earth Two Power Girl and the Earth Two Huntress, where the Earth Two Power Girl looks at the Earth Two Huntress and went, "Wow, you dodged a bullet." <laughs> they just completely changed you. <laughs> Me, I had to go through 16 different origins before Jeff Johns came along and finally said, she's from Earth 2. Deal with it. So, I'll, You know, I'll give him that. You know, as much as my uh, opinion of Jeff Johns has changed in recent months, I'll give him that. I do like that, uh, that he finally decided to scrape the bullshit off of, uh, of Power Girl. Boy, that was a terrible analogy. Um... You know, but just that he just, you know, like you said, came right out and said, look, she, she's from Earth 2, all right? Just, that's enough. I think that's what they should have done right from the beginning, you know? I think that there were a number of characters that were disserviced by trying to shoehorn them into post-crisis continuity and, and denying their their roots, you know? Because, uh, you know, not to be spoilerific, but, you know, a very similar thing was done with... Uh, what was her name? Fury, I think. Yeah, where she was now the daughter of Miss America. Well, I mean, even before that, there was that terrible issue where, who was it, Dr. Fate, I think, just makes her forget. Yeah, you know, and, and I remember that. That became the new origin, was that she just forgot. And I was like, huh, what, what shit is that? And then they finally revealed that she was actually the daughter of Miss America and somebody. I don't remember and, that. I, I yep. thought that she was the, she ended up being the daughter of the original Fury and oh, wait, the father wait, wait. was a mystery or something, right? Uh, yeah, she was the daughter of the original Fury and she was raised by Miss America. Okay, yeah, all right. That's right. Sorry, I was, I was, I was forgetting that. One of these days, I need to track down the rest of the... Uh, oh, damn it. Who was it that was doing that run on Wonder Woman that was pretty good? But she came back, 
in in the pages of Wonder Woman, and it was revealed she'd been living on Paradise Island for years, and she'd gone nuts and all this stuff. And I, I heard, I've only ever heard of it. I've, I haven't read any of it myself, but I heard that it was really good. But I always had a wow. I didn't know that they adapted that for that episode of Justice League. What's that? They adapted that story. That 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 kind of story was put into Justice League in the first or second season. Oh, really? Wow, I don't remember that. Yeah, there was a Fury type character that was that had, uh, you know, she was you know the last survivor of the shipwreck and raised on Paradise Island, but goes nuts and decides that the world's better off without men. Wow, why the, the hell can I, re- I don't remember her. that at all? But it's and been it a while pretty- since I've watched the, the that series. I really need to dig that out and rewatch it. I don't. Re- well, I don't remember that story. But yeah, I guess it might. That might actually be a, a, an adaptation of. Uh, no, that was. Oh God, what was that during uh, Christopher Priest's? It was either Christopher Priest run? or uh, who's the 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 Perez clone there? Phil Jimenez. Uh, Phil Jimenez. Yeah, it might. I be- think it was after Jimenez was run. And, yeah, uh, it was somewhere in that area. Uh, that era, rather. But yeah, I, I need to track that down because, as I say, I had a fondness for that character, and I, I just, you know, I like when the uh, I was going to say the young all stars, but I really I like when any of the all stars pop up modern day, and we get a little glimpse into where they are now, and you know, sometimes you're even surprised they're still around, you know. But you know, we got glimpses with like Iron Man Row and stuff like that. So certain ones, every once in a while, will pop up. Still wearing the white pants. Yeah, that was actually kind of silly. He looked like he hadn't aged a day. Was the funny thing too when he was in uh, when he was in Damage. I was like, all right, this guy's. Well, he was also in Manhunter. Yeah, he was Kate Spencer's grandfather. Grandfather, yeah, yeah. I like that. I need to finish reading that. I haven't finished reading that series yet. I think I got up to that point where he showed up at her door, and that was about as far as I, I got into that series, and then. I didn't stop reading out of disinterest or anything. I, maybe I ran out of issues. I forget, but uh, I, I did like that. But we're actually getting way ahead of ourselves on this whole thing. Um, <clears throat> but that's is- it for Crisis on Earth Prime. Yeah, made it through the uh, the, the the second. I guess I sh- I guess you could say big storyline um, after the first one because I think we can agree that the 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 alien taking over the planet, but it's not really an alien. It turns out to be just Professor Haster. <laughs> was a long storyline. I would not really call it big. <laughs> yeah, I just realized something that... Uh, I'm sorry, this is neither here nor there, but I just thought it was a very odd coincidence that the the center spread in this book is an ad for Starcade, which was a uh, CBS Saturday morning lineup of cartoons. Yep. This is the exact same ad that's in one, if not all three, of the uh, Star Wars issues that Chris Honeywell and I are going to cover tonight on uh, when we record <laughs> Star Wars Monthly Monday. That's pretty wild. That'll give an, uh, when these when these episodes finally air. That'll give the listeners an idea of just where we are <laughs> recording this because they, they they're not going to come out anywhere near synced up. But so that's funny. <laughs> the only other ad uh, I wanted to comment on was uh, this one on the back. I love the artwork here. Is this... Uh, that's got to be Garcia oh, Yeah, Garcia Lopez. Yeah, uh, that's great. I love that. It's for uh, 
superhero watches and what is a time stick never heard of a time stick before that's kind of cool looking though but it, it makes me uh think it's funny I, I was just talking to somebody at work about this the other night there's a a, a guy that i work with um his hobby is watches he collects watches and we were talking about this and he was like do you have any watches which I thought was a strange question. And I got to thinking about it, and I was like, well, you know, I only have one watch. And then I got to thinking about it, I was like, no, I actually have another watch somewhere in one of my many boxes of crap that's just milling about the house. Do you remember Superman vitamins? Yes. I mean, they were short-lived, but it was, uh, you know, like, there's been Flintstone vitamins for <laughs> they years. they gave kids cancer. <laughs> you know, they, they were they were basically they were they were like a Superman version of Flintstones vitamins. You know, yeah, I remember those. And you could send away for I don't know, it was like a membership in the Superman Vitamin Club or some. It was a sent away <laughs> offer. Well, I actually did it, and this was you know this was in the '90s when I was really getting into you know really just collecting. You know, just tons of comics and comics-related stuff. So I sent away for it. I ended up getting the thing in the mail, and it was like a little piece of parchment with your name on it. You know that you were a member of this club, and I was all. Tell me that you listed your name as Scotty Gardner, so you could feel like a little kid. (laughs) No, I did not. But a watch came with it, and it was actually a really nice watch. It was a Superman digital watch, and it had a little Superman face. It was like Superman flying over a city or something like that. Was was on the watch face, but it, it was a digital watch. I never wore it because it was kid-sized, had a crappy band on it, and I just wanted it for the collectible value. So this thing has been in the original plastic like all these years, you know, never used, never worn anything. It's presumably mint condition and all. I just kind of wonder about something like, you know, what would be like the the value or whatever of something like that. But my uh, ad is what made me think about that. So My roommate, Chuck, in 1998, he and his fiance uh, got me a Superman the Animated Series watch. It was a very nice watch that I had to stop wearing because whatever the backing of the watch was made in, whatever metal that was did not agree with my skin and my skin would turn green. Right. Um, Rachel, very early in our relationship got me a Superman pocket watch from the Warner Brothers store. Oh, cool. So I have that, and Walmart sold them at one point, and I think this was back in like 2006. But they were it was two watches. One was Batman with like an early detective cover, and another was uh, Superman with I don't know if it was Action Comics number one. I haven't seen the watch in years. It's hanging in a uh, jewelry case that also serves as a full length mirror that Rachel and I have. Um. So those are the only Superman watches I've ever really had. And outside of the pocket watch, they're all really kind of annoying because they're the watches that have just the 12, the 3, the 6, and the 9. And I hate those watches. Because <laughs> I can tell time. You show me a watch, you know, you know, with like a regular facing, not a digital watch, but one with a regular facing. I can, I can, I can tell time. I paid attention in school when they taught us how to tell time. And, uh, yeah, um, when you don't have numbers there, you know, is it 1 o'clock? Is it 2 o'clock? Am I late? Am I early? Crap, I'm going to stop wearing this watch. Plus, I hate wearing watches anyways. 
I always end up banging into shit. I don't know why. I guess we should read some emails now, because no one gives a crap about my watch collection. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting conversation. I just realized something I, I, I dug out real quick while you were talking. I've got these... Uh, well, I was these... doing something far more important. <laughs> no, I was listening. I'm just saying I was digging something out here. I've got uh, these three-ring binders where I keep all my trading cards in. I've got a series, and it's not complete, unfortunately, but it's a series... Says there was 12... I'm right. Here it is, right here. Okay. This is a series I had of um, DC Comics Superheroes collectible cards. And I was looking on here, I got to thinking when I was thinking about the Superman vitamins, that I think these cards came in the vitamins. And sure enough, it does. It says right here, manufactured by Nature Made Nutritional Products. So yeah, not only did could you send away for that uh, kit I was talking about, but you also got a trading card. And all the art in these is by uh, Garcia Lopez. So, like, number card number one was Superman, and then uh, you got Lois Lane, Batman, Robin. The Robin one is awesome because it's uh, the Dick uh, Dick Grayson Robin uh, riding his uh, his motorcycle. Another one is Superman. That's a a really classic one where it's it's actually a, a like a double exposure where half of it's uh, Clark Kent and then the other half is Superman. Wonder Woman, Supergirl, Penguin, Catwoman, Joker. But as I say, it's not complete. I'm missing... Uh, looks like I'm missing a couple of the cards out of this. If I think of it, I'll, uh, I'll put these babies on the scanner and scan them so people can see what they look like because they're actually pretty cool. So, um, my wife was taking some medicine in the other room when she heard our conversation and she brought me all the Superman watches. <laughs> um, the Superman um, God, I don't even want to open the back of this thing Because I'm sure that battery is all corroded to hell Because this thing is like, you know, 14 years old almost But it was kind of one of those hologram Like those lenticular things Where you put it one way, it's Clark Kent You put it the other, it's Superman uh, I had another Superman watch that was from Walmart That was actually pretty cool It just has the symbol on it mm-hmm. And it had an alarm on it It wasn't digital, but it had an alarm Or a light which doesn't work anymore. So um, I have the pocket watch and the Armatron watch that has the Action Comics logo is just a Wayne boring Superman flying against an Action Comics logo. So still pretty cool. I like the hell out of these things. <laughs> Will you take a picture and post that, and I'll uh, I'll do scans of these cards, and we'll we'll have some. Some stuff and, to uh, we also, uh, she also brought me my Superman cufflinks that I wore at my wedding. <laughs> also from the Warner Brothers store. And I think I speak for everybody that remembers the Warner Brothers store. Damn, I miss that store. Yes. <laughs> that one in that. the underground was awesome. So it was the one at Lennox, which was a little bigger yeah. than that one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> for those of you who are familiar with Atlanta. Uh, yes. I do... I do need to get the battery replaced in this pocket watch, though. It's just so awesome. See, that's my problem. I, I have one watch that I that I ever wear, and uh, the battery ran dead, and I'm just a lazy bastard and never got it replaced, but I need to. Oh, God days. knows that's true. Because it's awesome. Actually, there's a lot of truth in those statements. So, <laughs> so you ready to dig through some emails, maybe let's, knock out the rest of them? Let's do that. Uh, you take the first one. All right. 
All right, this one is uh, entitled Just in Time. It says, Hi, Tails Ers. <laughs> okay. I don't Tails-ers. think that's. Yeah, I don't think that's going to catch on. <laughs> Just in time to join the fun, I managed to track down the rest of my All Star Squadron run in a batch of comics selling for 25 cents an issue. Yay. Ooh, those boxes also included some Infinity Ink issues and a bunch of other cool stuff, including full runs of Fury of Firestorm. Hawk World and Suicide Squad. That's some good reading right there. Uh, Devin, where are you from? And the only reason I ask is because at that comic shop you and I went to at the beginning of 2010, Scott, mm-hmm. there was that 50 Cent dealer, uh, Dave's, that's my current comic shop. He had full runs of Fury of Firestorm and Hawk World and Suicide Squad. <laughs> It was a 50 cent one, so I, uh, I guess not. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to write, he or she, because I guess Devin could be a, a male or female name, right? Because there's Devin Grayson, right? I don't What? Know. Which one? Devin. The, the, the author of this email is Devin Clancy, so is, I wonder if that's a male or a female. I don't know. I don't know either. Write in and tell us a little bit more about yourself, Devin. Including uh, just, you know, generically where you're from. I mean, I don't need your street address, but just like to know where you're writing. What what area of the planet you're writing from. Anyway, he or she continues. Prison. Uh, yeah, prison. <laughs> we get a lot of those. I was a bit behind on the podcast because the Fortress of Bailey 2 blog uh, said you were still only up to episode 25. But now that I've caught up. And I'm really enjoying the run. These comics feel much more sophisticated and quote-unquote modern than the adventure comic stories you were just covering, despite the passing of only a couple of years between the two series. Yeah, I think we commented on that, that I thought that there was a much bigger gap between those two than there actually really was. But uh, I, I think it is because the the storytelling style, um, as you say, did, did seem to have matured. Um was this typical of the DC storytelling of this era, or is All-Star Squadron that much ahead of its time? I I'd say it was pretty much typical of this time period. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Um, from what I've heard, it seems like New Teen Titans was blazing a trail in terms of more sophisticated stories, but are there other stories from the early 80s that are as good as these two? Hmm. Legion? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Legion. I would say Legion of Superheroes. Yeah. I, I would say the Batman Yes. Uh, series from this era was was pretty I mean once you got into the Doug Minch you know Jason you know Jason Todd introduction from like you know late 83 early 84 you know where it turned into pretty much a soap opera but still in terms of of subject matter there was a certain sophistication to it so yeah I would say really that's that's a fair statement (laughs) I love this next chapter I really enjoy the podcast, so please don't change a thing. My favorite part uh, from a few episodes back was when you talked about Mike's jack-off material for a couple minutes and later turned the hostess ad into an audio porn. In between those two, you wished longingly for comics to be more (laughs) kid-friendly. That's comedy cold. I had a small bone to pick with you guys a few months back, but my concern over it waned uh, over time before I got around to emailing you. So it's more of a nitpick than a bone, and I don't want you to think I'm angry or upset at all. I love Tales and all the work I've heard from you two. However, 
I typically listen to this podcast and from Crisis to Crisis while doing freelance writing and editing work for magazines. I'm paid pretty well for my work, but your stance on downloading comics got me to thinking about where I'd be if my employer couldn't sell my work and pay me for it because people were getting it for free. Uh, I didn't want... Excuse me. <clears throat> I don't want to tell you that you, should, uh, you shouldn't download stuff. Nothing pisses me off more than someone projecting their own moral stance on someone else. It's especially difficult to criticize you guys since you put so much personal effort and attention into putting out top-quality work that's 100% free. But the whole thing makes me a little queasy. You've heard all the old arguments, so I won't rehash them. I just want to get that off my chest since it's been brewing a while. Uh, thanks for reading my mini-complaint, assuming you're still reading this. Uh, keep up the good work, Devin. No, I, I completely agree with you because, you know, I, I've thought of that myself is, you know, what if I was the, the person on the other side? You know, what if I, you know, put myself out there in some project that was supposed to be paying me dividends and you've got people just getting it for free? You know, how would I feel about that? But, uh, you know, I, I don't... I don't know. I think maybe that's a, a topic we could we could look at another time or something like that. I... It, my 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 answer for it, I'm afraid, would come off very trite, and and I don't want it to sound that way, and I don't, I especially don't want it to sound patronizing. But it, it essentially comes down to this: I think it's just the nature of the world we live in these days. I think that's just one of the dangers that you're going to face if you do anything that's uh, related to video, audio, or a print medium these days. Is that you run that risk? So I mean, yeah. it, it's it's well distributed to all of us, you know, that that do any sort of project like that. So, um, I don't know. I, I, that however, sounds like a half-assed answer to me, but that's the only answer I can give you. You know, the, the only thing I will say is I, I have yet to hear a story where an artist isn't paid for their work because somebody downloaded the material. Right. Right. So the only th yeah, but like I said, the only thing I'll, I'll say on that is, you know, I've I've never heard of a comic being canceled because it was downloaded. So, right. you know, I appreciate where Devin's coming from. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, it doesn't matter, so shut up. Because, well, I'm not that type of person. Um, you know, a lot of the comics I've downloaded are comics that I have paper versions of that I've paid for. So, and I just want a digital backup in case something ever happens to the paper copy. Um, but I don't really want to get into the whole downloading. Right. Exact thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> me, I think we'll just, I think, no, a really good email, and uh, we'll just move on to the next one from our good friend Stan Johnston. And his subject is that nth metal in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> just to give you an idea of when this is from, guys, this is from July 18th, 2010. I wonder if nth metal works on erectile dysfunction. I bet you it does. Uh, it's Earth 2's version does. I bet you anything. Uh, hi, guys. All-Star Squadron number 7 featured a comment about Frank Buck, which you talked about in episode 36. It made me think about a television series from the fall of 1982 called Bring Em Back Alive, which starts Scott Gardner's best friend, Bruce Boxleitner. <laughs> Sorry, I had we to add that. As Frank Buck, it was based very loosely on the real Buck, and along with Tales of the Gold Monkey, attempted to capitalize on the popularity of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never heard of that. It didn't work, however, 
and both shows were canceled after only one season. Not sure what that has to do with anything, but I thought I'd share it anyway. Any idea who the appropriate person at DC is to bombard to get an absolute treatment for All-Star Squadron? Is it, it, it at least deserves to be traded. Later, Stan. I'll agree with traded. Absolute treatment, I think uh, I think you're dreaming, pal, to Good be luck. honest with you. but. But traded? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see that. Have no idea. Um, Ian Sattler is the group editor for trade for trades and collected editions. Ian Sattler at dccomics.com. Cool. And the only reason I know that is that we're over it from crisis to crisis. We have been trying to get <laughs> Dark Knight over Metropolis traded, and we had a bunch of people email in. So. There you go on that. Cool. All right, the next one is entitled The Baron and the Dog. Sounds like a 70s TV series. (laughs) Starts with, hey guys, I can't tell you how excited I am that Baron Blitzkrieg has entered the book. Out of all the DC villains, he's one of my favorites. My first exposure to the character uh, was, oddly enough, in the first few issues of All-Star Squadron I picked up, where a group of heroes follow him to a certain Earth, and kills one of said heroes. I didn't want to spoil it for those who haven't read it. What the hell book is he talking about? He's talking about All-Star Squadron number 35. I'm oh, sure. it's coming ahead. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, he has one of my favorite costumes, too. Yes, it's yellow, pink, and orange, but damn if every artist uh, who worked on him didn't make the effort to make him look cool. Plus, he's got the metal helmet slash mask. Whenever I read a comic... With him in it, I always uh, had a feeling of dread because anytime this guy shows up, you had no idea what he was capable of. I will completely, completely agree with you. I love yep. Baron Blitzkrieg because he's basically Nazi Superman, and I love it. Yeah, and plus, he's got a little bit of Doctor Doom thrown in there, too, I think. So I, I like that character. Sadly, I wish I could say that for the villain of our final hostess ad. I knew this day was coming. But you're never prepared for it when it comes. Thankfully, some asshole in a dog costume with the world's stupidest plot softened the blow. I mean, really? You're going to sit there with a straight face and tell me this guy somehow managed to find a dog suit and he thought he'd just walk in there with a dog whistle and take these dogs? (laughs) And another thing, the way it's drawn in two panels where he has his mask on, that's the most horrifying thing I've seen in my life. And it'll give me nightmares to come. And of course, snack cakes save the day. You know these criminals are too easily swayed by cake and frosting. Granted, they look delicious as hell, but it's Batman. <laughs> All it takes is one punch and the guy goes down like the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that bothers me. What does, uh, I'm sorry, yet that doesn't bother me. What does bother me is the fact that when Batman showed up, the guy made a roof sound. <laughs> Either he was really in character and excited to see those hostess swinkies, or he thought he could fool Batman <laughs> with a dog sound. <laughs> you know, I'm really going to miss these ads. You and me both, man, because nothing has come along since that that can take the place of those ads. And I don't think anything ever did, did it? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I, I know. I, I really miss it. You know, <laughs> I think you and I had talked about the idea of just starting up like a mini mini cast of just yes. posts ads just because we missed that segment so much. I really do. I, I oh, And there were so many good ones that we never even got to, you know, especially like there's Marvel ones. 
You know, yes. Get Marvel ones in a deep. With the dingalings. Yeah, oh, I love that shit. Love that shit. Lastly, while I admire you guys' uh, journey to cover every JSA appearance you can, I'm going to have to go against the grain here and tell you something I honestly hate to say. The Huntress, Huntress backups aren't doing it for me. Right now, we're in that stage where any guest appearance of the JSA, be it an issue of Brave and the Bold, a backup feature in Flash, or anything else DC felt the need to put the JSA in, boils down to either hit or miss. Sadly, a lot of the Huntress stuff has been a, been a big old miss to me. I think that Grundy story uh, really soured me on the potential this character had uh, to hold her own backup. I'm looking forward to the Huntress slash Batman issue of Brave and the Bold, but honestly, I'd love to see you guys cover two issues of All-Star Squadron. I don't mean to be down on the extra stuff. I, uh, it's just I find myself uh, just not digging these extra stories as much as I do the main feature. Hope I haven't offended you guys. But I just wanted to voice my opinion. Hey, well, fuck you, pal, if you don't like it. No, I mean, that's the reason that we... we nice! Not, he knows I'm kidding. I know, but Jesus! <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm just kidding. That's why we dropped it, honestly. that Because we came to feel the exact same way as what you just voiced. That it was just dragging the episodes down. As a matter of fact, I had fully intended, um, while we had that ginormous uh, hiatus there to just tackle that Huntress stuff solo, you know, and, and just do like, uh, you know, kind of like uh, Tom Cater's style coverage of that, you know, and, and just short little bursts, because they're short stories. I mean, they're only, what, like five, six pages, something like that. Yep. And while I, I still kind of toy with the idea, I just, for one, I just never found the time to do it, but also it, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, honestly, the art's great in many of those stories, but the stories themselves are just kind of meh, so... While I do want to be, you know, that the go-to podcast for JSA adventures, you know, so to speak, at the same rate, you know, and I think you and Jeffrey found this at FCTC, if I'm not mistaken, is, you know, there's a fine line between being authoritative and getting into just, oh, God, you know, this is drudgery, you know? So we're trying to strike that balance, you know, of of giving you the stories we feel that you want and that you need to, to be able to follow the history of the team, but... I don't want that to come at the expense of boring the shit out of you with a bunch of adventures that ultimately, for one, don't really amount to anything. Yeah. Know, but also just aren't that good. So we're going to be selective. Maybe. Yeah, it, it, it is that thing on, if, on From Crisis to Crisis where it, it it just depends. Do we like the story? We'll talk about it. If we don't like the story, we will at least mention it to get you know to tell people that it's there. But, you know, we ran into that problem with War of the Gods. Which right. is just a story I don't like. Right. I don't care for. I read the first issue and I'm like, God, this thing is just awful to get through. I, and then it feels like work. Yeah, exactly. Exa- yeah, exactly. That's it. It, it becomes a chore. And that's the last thing I want, um, you know, any show I participate in, but especially this one, because I have, uh, you know, I have a real fondness for this podcast, you know? And that's the last thing I want to do is get into something that, that feels like it's a chore to get through, you know? Which is what that Huntress stuff was becoming. It was becoming laborious, and so we jettisoned it. So I, I'm glad that you feel the same way that, that we felt about it. And uh, believe me, no no offense taken whatsoever, because we, we felt exactly the way that you just said. Um, in conclusion, he says, Thank you very much, and I can't wait to get to two of my many favorite moments in All-Star Squadron. The addition of Steel to the team, and shortly thereafter, 
the JLA JSA All Star Team Up. <laughs> well, that we just wrapped up this this episode. Yay! Sincerely, and this is from our good friend Jose A. Rivera. Thank you, Jose. We always appreciate the feedback. Speaking of feedback, we always appreciate. The next one comes from Frankie Adiego. Flash of Two Worlds hmm. is the subject. Says Michael. So Scott, get out. This is for me. No, I'm just kidding. Asshole. Uh, <laughs> while I miss the chemistry between you and Scott that made Tales what it is, I think it was about time to talk about the Flash of Two Worlds. I understand why you don't want to sit there and talk about Golden Age stories and why you did decide to start with All-Star Squadron, but it was time to talk about this epic. The fact that the Flash, if we count every version of the Flash as a gestalt, was so instrumental in, bo- in, in both establishing the multiverse and in stories that put the multiverse in balance, Crisis on Infinite Earths and its sequels, that I would go as far to say that the big three should be considered a, a big four with the Scarlet Speedster in there. I'm not saying that out of fan talk because I'm not a huge fan of the character per se, but I do think his importance to the DC, Don't Kill Me, rivals that of Batman and Wonder Woman. I feel that if they made a Flash movie and avoid the standard, here's the origin, here's him going after his coolest foe plot, they could have a huge hit on their fans. Oh, and as for that other podcast, yes, John Wesley Shipp is a hell of a nice guy. Sincerely, Frankie Adiego. Um... I'm going to... I, I, I felt this way for freaking years, okay? When DC published that Trinity miniseries back in, like, 2003... Yeah, it was 2003. Um, and then ran with that as a concept of the... You know, the core of the DCU is Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. I never bought into that. For a couple of reasons. One... If you look at the history of these characters, yeah, they were always friends, and sometimes they were even on the same team together. But, you know, Superman and Batman had a lot to do with each other. Wonder Woman was always kind of the redheaded stepchild of the DCU. She was always getting messed with and, and had to go on strange adventures. And especially in the post crisis era, Wonder Woman was pretty much all on her own. It wasn't until, I would have to say, you know, Justice League Europe after the Giffen era ended, that she even joined that team. So, I don't buy into it historically. And two, I think with the DC, it should not be the Trinity, it should be the Magnificent Seven. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, whoever's Green Lantern, whoever's the Flash, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter. That's the foundation of the DC universe to me. Those are the important characters. So uh, I agree with Frankie. Frankie here. I, I have to politely disagree. If they decided to go with the Magnificent Seven, I, I'm I'm totally fine with that because for a time, um, it did seem like that was the direction they were going. You know, right around the time of uh, of Morrison's JLA, it seemed like they had restored those characters to that function of of they were the they were the big guns. You know, but to me. I, while I bought into the trilogy thing, you know, with kind of the caveat that, yeah, we're kind of allowing Wonder Woman to tag along in this, I don't see her as, as being anywhere near the the same level as Superman and Batman. And I'm talking sales-wise, you know? Okay. P- power level? Yeah, she's right up there with Superman. But I'm talking as, as 
you know, a, a sales force. I mean, come on, she's way behind, you know, those guys. But anyway, what I'd really like to see more than a trilogy or a magnificent seven or anything like that, or trinity rather, not trilogy. What I'd really like to see is what I think it, it should be for me is, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It should be Superman and then all these other guys. That's just how I think it should be. That's why I loved the logo for um, Justice League when it came out. You had Superman was forefront right in the middle, and then everybody else was kind of filtering out you know, from behind him. Because I, I, that's just how I see it. It's the same way on that John Byrne Legends poster that I that I have. You know the promo poster. You've got Superman, you know, forefront, right in the center, and then everybody else is kind of spread out behind him. That, that's how I envision the DC universe. So, you know, the Flash, though. See, here's the thing about the Flash, and and, and I, I I certainly don't want to you know uh, piss on anybody's parade, but I see the Flash the way I think a lot of other people see Aquaman. You know, Aquaman to so many people, he's the guy that talks to fish. Well, for me, the Flash, he's the guy that runs fast. That's it. You know, that that's all there is to that character. So I think that there's going to have to be a whole lot more work done to have that character truly step up to where I would ever consider putting him into like a big four. You know what I mean? I'm fine with him being one of the Magnificent Seven because I do think that he deserves that that place. But as far as being allowed to be in a big four to stand, you know, right up there with, with you know, on the same pedestal with Superman and Batman, I don't think so. Not yet. But, you know, one day, possibly. But at this point, I, I just, to me, I, I've never been won over on The Flash. I mean, I enjoyed the hell out of the TV show. And I collected the comic for a time post-crisis, you know, when it was, uh, you know, the early days of the Wally series. And I enjoyed it and everything. But I didn't see ultimately where the difference was between, like, say, that run of The Flash and, like, you know, the early issues of, like, Fury of Firestorm or something like that. I, I don't see the difference. He, he's not a top-tier character to me. So, I don't know. I hope I haven't pissed anybody off saying that. But that's just how I see the character. You know what I mean? So it's, it's no, I know of, exactly what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but... You know, it's just you know, it, it, it's your opinion, and you know, you you've read enough comics where. <laughs> well, I mean, do you see the Flash as a top tier character? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I do. Really? Yes, I do. I absolutely see the Flash as an important character to the DC universe. Hmm. Especially when Wally was the Flash, and 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 Barry historically, but you know these. When I think of the DCU, I think of that poster that I have that I took down recently because it just doesn't want to hang up on the wall. <laughs> uh, it's a Garcia Lopez poster and it's, it says superpowers, even though most of the figures on it weren't superpowers figures, but it had everybody on it. It had a Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, Batgirl and all that. And the flash, right. you know, when I close my eyes and I've said this before, when I close my eyes and I think of DC, it is those seven characters that I see in my head. And, you know, it's not that I don't like the obscure characters, and it's not that I don't think that, you know, characters like Blue Devil or Dr. Fate or, or, or anybody else that Shag likes um, are not important, because they are, because they add to the tapestry of the universe. But as a foundation, 
you have the characters that survived really the longest when you think about it. Right. You know, when they were bringing back superheroes in the in starting in 1956, you know, who did they bring back? They brought back Flash, Flash Green yeah. Lantern. Uh, Aquaman was always kind of around. You know, Martian Manhunter was created in the 50s and was always kind of there. And I will agree that Martian Manhunter's place wasn't really important until the Justice League came along, and then only historically, because not much was done with his character. It was really um, Giffen and DeMatteis that made the Martian Manhunter an important part of the DC Universe. Right. Because really and truly, he was the only guy that outside of like the Satellite era, that was a, that was always a member of the Justice League. You know, he's always freaking there. And it's why it saddened me when Grant Morrison, who made that character so important to the point that they gave him his own series in 1998, right around DC One Million, which was an awesome series. I love that Martian Manhunter series by Ostrander and Mandrake. Mm-hmm. That he's the one that killed him and made him kind of irrelevant. I, and I, not only killed him, killed him off panel. Yeah, I remember that. I guess my my question, though, is, I mean, because I agree with everything you're saying that, yeah, I I see his relevance to the DC universe. I I see his importance and, you know, the fact, like you say, he was the first one, not so much resurrected, but, you know, uh, reimagined in the 50s, you know, to to start the Silver Age. I I understand all that, but I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it, it goes back to Frankie's question here. Uh, or statement rather about he doesn't really see so much a big three is that there's a big four and Flash is one of them. That's where I, I have the difference of opinion, and I, I'm just I I want to know from you, Mike. I mean, all right, imagine that there that there is a a, a pedestal, and on that that pedestal you can add you can either replace Wonder Woman. Or you can add a fourth person, so that there's now there, there's a quartet rather than a trinity. Who would that fourth character be? Would it really be the Flash? For me, yes. And, 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 and but that is my personal. When I'm thinking of DC characters, he is in fourth place. Mm-hmm. So he's right there on the starting line. I mean, I actually like the Flash more than I like Wonder Woman. So. But as of importance, yeah, I'd put him up there. But again, you know, if I put him up there, I'm going to want to put Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Manhunter, and Aquaman. So it w- it's a it's a tough one because now that I think about, it, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at a picture of the classic '80s Justice League. You know, when when all the big guys were in it, trying to think who would, who the hell would I put up there? If, if, you know, I don't see. I, personally, I don't see it as being a big four to begin or a big three to begin with. I really don't. But going with that... It's a cute marketing gimmick. Yeah, but I mean, going with that, you know, for the sake of, of this conversation, if I had to make that big three a big four, who would fill that fourth spot? And I don't know, that would be a really tough decision because honestly, I don't think anybody that's left on the list deserves it, to be perfectly frank. But if I had to pick somebody, I would have to probably very, very, very grudgingly go with Green Lantern, which I don't really feel that either. But I think that he is I'm marginally. Sorry. What? <laughs> what? I just know how you feel about him. So 
Well, I I think that he's a little bigger gun and and a little more. Uh... See, here's where I have to be careful because again, I don't want to offend anybody. I just think he's a little cooler. Uh, he's got a little more mythos to him than say like the Flash because ultimately. And again, I, I apologize. This is just my perception of the character. The Flash is a guy that runs fast. I mean, that's it. That's pretty much all there is to that character. He, he he moves at super speed. I mean, that's only so interesting for so long, in my opinion. Whereas Green Lantern, while I find Hal Jordan as Green Lantern to be boring as shit, the world he lives in is pretty cool. I mean, you know, he works for the cosmic police force and, you know, there's all these aliens. I mean, you've got an, 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 an infinite playground there, you know, whereas the flash, I don't know so much, you know, I mean, how, how interesting can you continue to make a, a guy that, that runs fast? And that was my problem with the flash and why I've always found that character extremely difficult to get into. You know, we were in a conversation a while back about, you know, Superman and, you know, how how uh, hard it would be to write for Superman in, and things like that. I think The Flash is the character that would give me the worst nightmares trying to write for because and, and I felt that when I was reading The Flash as a kid, I could feel that in the material that the the writers got to a point where they were like, shit, I'm out of ideas, you know. So I don't know. I, again, I feel like I'm dumping on somebody's, you know, somebody's character, and I don't. I really don't mean that. It's just I'm just saying that these are my perceptions. I would like to be won over on the character, you know, because I did it. You know, I did enjoy the TV show, and I know that the TV show is so far removed from what the comics were actually like or are actually like. At least that's my understanding. Uh, so I just I look at a series like The Flash, you know, the original volume one of Flash that ran what, like three hundred and fifty issues, and I wonder, Jesus Christ, how did they write three hundred and fifty issues of this? And I read some of it, and to me it was like so throwaway it's not even funny. So I don't know. He he is one of those characters that really is a mystery to me. But then again, I'm an Aquaman fan, you know, and people that aren't look at him exactly the same way. It's a guy that swims and talks to fish. How interesting did that shit be? Yeah. And I think he is so important to the DC universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you... <clears throat> the main reason I look at those characters the way I do is, yeah, Superman's top. Always. Right. You know, for me, forever. You know. But when you look at those seven characters, they each represent something very specific. You know... Yeah, Superman can do everything the Flash can do, and and a lot of what Martian Manhunter can do, but he always represents the first and the greatest. You know, I set the trend. You know, I'm the one everyone looks up to. I am the inspiration. Then you have Batman, who's the human guy, you know, that just trained himself to the peak of physical condition and can kick a lot of ass. Wonder Woman is the mythological character. She is, you know, she represents a look back to the gods and everything. You know, she she is, you know, the old the old ways kind of, but she is just as powerful as Superman. So she, you know, she is important, especially because she's a woman. You know, she's the top female character in DC. The Flash is speed. 
he represents a specific power that is really freaking cool and has been a hallmark of DC through its entire existence. You know, 1940, Jay Garrick was created, and he was there until 1951, and then Barry came in 56, and Wally came in 86 as the Flash. He was Kid Flash before that. And, you know, it's the through line. He is. He also represents the legacy of the DC universe. Green Lantern, to me, straddles the line between science fiction and magic. Because as much as Space Cops is a science fiction concept, that power battery always screams magic to me. Mm-hmm. And he rides that line. And in the Golden Age, it was magic, basically. Right. <clears throat> Aquaman... I don't know why it's important to have a sea-based character, but Marvel has one and DC has one. Right. And he also represents a power that a lot of people make fun of, but here's the thing, and this is something Peter David said once. You drop Aquaman in the middle of Gotham City, he's making it out. You drop Batman without a breathing apparatus in the middle of Atlantis, the non-domed Atlantis... He has three minutes. Right. Aquaman is strong. Aquaman is not invulnerable, but he's tough. And he is a character that can have an adventure literally anywhere on Earth. You know, you know, you could put him in the desert. Yeah, it's going to create a complication, but you could still do that and it would be kind of interesting. See, and Martian... I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. And Martian Manhunter... He's the heart because he has been in so many incarnations of the Justice League and because of who he is. You know, he is. He and Superman are the last survivors of their own planet, but at the same time, Superman's the accepted good looking one and he's kind of, you know, the, the, the redheaded stepchild of the alien community. But he holds that group together to me. He is the one that everyone can go to and talk to. Everyone can go to and confide in. You know, he is, you know, he is so important and he's a telepath. And for a while there, that was really cool because he would hook them all up telepathically. Right. And it would make communication a lot better on the battlefield. And I love that Morrison made him the strategist. Like, he's the one that can figure crap out. Plus, he's got a cool backstory, so... I'm done with my rant. I'm sorry. No, no. I, no, I, I think this is a very interesting discussion. See, I was tempted to say Aquaman would be, you know, if, if there was a big four, that he would be my choice for the fourth one. But I find it a little bit hard to justify. Plus, if you've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman, you've got the super friends, you know? And that's another reason you can point to them being important. I mean, that, that episode of Justice League Unlimited where it was the four, to, four of them fighting Black Vulcan, Tsunami, and the Wonder Twins. I mean, that was a great issue episode great. of that series. Yeah, it was. It really was. <laughs> so, so, I don't know. Maybe maybe there is something to be said for it being, being Aquaman. Plus, he is uh, off the top of my head. I think he's the only other one of that group that has Golden Age roots, isn't he? Um, yeah. He was a Golden Age kid. He was created by Mort Wessinger. Yeah. As was Green Arrow. So. You know, whereas, you know, the, 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 you know, we're talking the, uh, 
you know, depending on which Flash you're talking, you know, definitely yeah. a, a, you know, post Jay Garrick Flash and a post uh, Alan Scott Green Lantern, you know, neither one of those characters owe back that far. So maybe simply for age and golden age roots, Aquaman would deserve that spot. But yeah, I mean, he was always kind of around. Right. Um, I, I'm, <clears throat> his older adventures are kind of goofy. And he had the yellow gloves, which was kind of weird. Well, a lot of his his adventures over the years have been goofy, but I don't know. I, I would, I'd like, I'd honestly like to be one over with the Flash. I really would. It's just every time I've ever sampled it, you know, and dipped my toe into that pool, I, I just, I, I come away wanting. You know, I come away just going, I just don't get it. You know. Well. The thing with me, with with Kyle Rayner and Wally West especially, uh, and most importantly, is that I started literally at the ground floor with Kyle. Mm-hmm. Senior skip day, 1994, I dropped my friend Eric Stovkin off at his house. I still got an hour till I go home. Because, uh, you know, even though it was senior skip day, I still didn't want my dad to know that we skipped school. And, and really, it was... It, <laughs> It was a lousy senior skip day because it was the day of the senior picnic, and it didn't matter if we showed up or not. So, but I drop my friend off. I go to Comic Quest in Emmaus, and sitting on the shelf are Green Lantern fifty one and fifty two, and you have that cover of fifty one where Green where Kyle is flying at the camera, and I'm like, wow, what is that? Right. And I picked it up and I followed that character until Rebirth. Mm-hmm. And he was my Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And it was just neat to see him rise to such a status in the DC universe. Because, you know, he had to kind of kick and scream, and Wally kind of was a jerk to him, which is funny as hell, because a lot of people were jerks to Wally when he first became the Flash. So you figure he would understand. But he took that douchebag frat boy mentality as, oh, somebody hazed me, so I'm going to haze this person because right. I'm in a position to do so. But Wally, when I discovered Wally in 94, when Mark Wade was two years into his run, I utterly fell for that character. I liked him a lot. And I think he is the most significant character outside of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman uh, in the DCU because he is the only one Outside of Dick Grayson, maybe, and you can argue, well, you can argue Wally now too, but Wally was the one that his mentor died, and he took up the mantle. You know, when Green Arrow died, it wasn't Speedy that became Green Arrow. Um, Troya has filled in for Wonder Woman, but it's really not the same. Wally was the Flash. He was Kid Flash. Barry died. He stepped into the role and made it his own. Right. And that is, you know, and Dick Grayson really hasn't done that. And Troya never really did that when she was filling in for Diana after Infinite Crisis. You know, Speedy never did that. Um, Aqualad never did that. Aqualad went off and became Tempest. He became his, became his own person. You know, as did Speedy. So... Really, Wally West is like just this, he is—he is the personification of a superhero legacy, which is why bringing Barry back is such a disservice to him. I mean, you could have Jay Garrick there, 
you know, it's great to have Grandpa. And I don't mean that derogatory, because you know how much I love Jay Garrick. Right. Um, and he can be the Flash, but there is the semi-retired Flash who's there training the old guy, you know, the newcomers. And then there is the guy being the Flash right now in his prime, and that was Wally. And just bringing Barry back ruined that. It just completely and utterly ruined that. Ruined that dynamic completely. And it didn't help that they kept fucking up the Flash again and again and again until Barry came back. You know, it was it was just sad to see. I love that character. So I agree. Uh, that was a whole lot of uh, non just justice society talk, but I think it was awesome nonetheless. Do we want to cover any more uh, emails for this time around? No, because I really got to pee. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Truth in podcasting here, folks. We're not pulling any punches. I love it. <laughs> we can go out on that if you want. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> what a place. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Out. We can't. We have to say that this uh, this issue has never been reprinted. So this issue has never been reprinted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook, to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. <laughs>